when I was 10 years old, I decided that I wanted to understand individual differences in response to similar environments. And I thought it was, you know, all about family. And it turned out to be so much more complicated than that. On episode one of the Prevention Matters podcast, we chat with Dr. Diana Fishbein, director of the National Prevention Science Coalition, and learned how her experiences growing up in Washington, D.C., laid the foundation for a career in prevention, the challenges working in the field, and how the National Prevention Science Coalition is helping practitioners and researchers navigate the policymaking process. All of that and more in this episode of the Prevention Matters podcast. The National Prevention Science Coalition is the premier professional association dedicated to translating scientific knowledge into effective and sustainable programs and policies to enhance the well-being of children, families, and communities. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. And now the host of the Prevention Matters podcast. Dr. Robert Lachos. Diana Fishbein, welcome to the Prevention Matters podcast. Hi, Robert. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. So why don't we start by telling uh, us a little bit about how'd you get into the field of prevention science? Oh, goodness. Well, there was quite a journey to to convey here. Um, I was born in... um, Washington, D.C., and we lived in and around D.C. growing up um, in what is known as a criminogenic neighborhood. In other words, there was a lot of crime, there was a lot of violence, and there was a lot of addiction. And I witnessed some atrocities. I also personally experienced um, quite a lot of adversity, but not from within the home. All my adversity was experienced outside the home in my community. So as I was, um, you know, getting into kindergarten and first grade, you know, the early elementary school years, um, I began to experience a lot of discrimination. So I was Jewish growing up in an anti-Semitic neighborhood, and I was too young to know. um, And we really didn't practice, so it never even occurred to me that it was because of uh, of a religion or my ethnicity, um, but I was severely discriminated against. Um, I was actually beaten. Um, I was hit by teachers. I was backhanded. I was uh, marginalized. I was taken aside from classes. And um, basically, they didn't call it timeout then, but that's basically what it was. Um, I was uh, disciplined for doing absolutely nothing. Literally, um, in my in fifth grade, I had to stand behind my fifth grade teacher and tease her hair, um, which made me incapable of taking notes and learning in class. And that was every day. And because of that, I have just tremendous pain and heartache and suffering on behalf of all those who have experienced inequality and um, who have been discriminated against for any number of reasons and in particular racism in our society. Um, But my home was my safe haven. And so I knew when I was very, very young that I wanted to understand why people took different pathways, why so many of these kids that experienced a very low income area, why they could be 
you know, um, struggling, um, not eating enough, um, not having enough to eat, um, you know, not um, always being t well taken care of, not having nurturing homes, um, a lot of conflict in the neighborhood, gun ownership, and so on and so forth. And why is it that so many kids did okay in spite of that? Why did they do okay? I felt that they did at that point in time because of um, home environment that maybe parents that were nurturing helped them to overcome what they were experiencing in their environment because that's what was happening with me. I had a nurturing environment. I had loving parents. My home was a safe haven, but outside that door was not. Right. And, when, and, what, and what's interesting is probably about that time when, you know, when you were old enough to be self-aware of that, that's when really Emmy Werner was doing those studies on um, resiliency yes. in Hawaii. Exactly. And so, you know, I wanted to understand, and I decided what I wanted to do for a living when I was 10 years old. I decided that I wanted to understand individual differences in response to similar environments. And I thought it was, you know, all about family. And it turned out to be so much more complicated than that. And so I gravitated, but I, I went into neuroscience. So that's what my background is in because I wanted to understand things at the level of the interaction between the environment and the brain. And what became really apparent to me was that these negative influences are malleable and most importantly, they're preventable. Yeah, and I think a lot of people that um, get involved in um, the prevention sciences, you know, public health, psychology, sociology, um, and other fields, I think they all have kind of a personal experience with some of those some of those issues that you you shared with us when you um you know you, you graduated high school and you um go off to college tell us about that experience well um so yeah and it's funny because i went to high school we moved to a different area because after watching my boyfriend in ninth grade beat up somebody and crack his skull open in a gang fight I went home crying and said, Mom and Dad, this is not for me. Can we get out of here? And that next summer, we moved and went to a, a more affluent neighborhood, in fact, right next to NIH. And that just changed my trajectory entirely. So I went to college, um, and I started at University of Maryland, and then I went to uh, Florida State University. And I developed a track that was unique. I, I started in criminology, and then I brought in neuroscience. And so that... Um, enabled me to begin to look at this integral interaction between the brain and the environment and understand it at that level. And like I said, it just became so apparent to me that there are many, many critical points in the developmental trajectory when we intervening and we could be intervening to improve outcomes for children who are otherwise experiencing a lot of adversity. And so when you, um, you know, you graduate with your doctoral degree, what was the first job that you, you I, got? I laugh because my life is so interesting, but to me only probably. But um, so I applied for an NIH fellowship um, as a postdoc, and I had to wait to find out if I was going to get it or not. In the meantime, the University of Baltimore offered me a teaching job that I didn't apply for. <laughs> and I didn't want to teach because I was very shy and I was frightened. Um, but I needed a salary, and I didn't know if this postdoc was going to come through. So I took the University of Baltimore job, and then I got the postdoc. So I had two full-time jobs. 
And um, I, I found out then that I am um, a workaholic <laughs> and I kept two full-time jobs. I bought some time out from the university, but I had a major role there in their department of criminology. And I actually stayed there for, gosh, I think it was almost 14 years. But I also had a job as a full-time researcher always uh, as well. And so I was an NIH fellow. And then I went to the University of Maryland School of Medicine for a um, for a additional work, and then um, and then I went to the the National Institute on Drug Abuse um, and their intramural research program for several more years of research training, and then I started to have children. So, so I, I realized I need to cut all this back because I wanted to raise my children. I was not one to leave that to others to do. Well, that's great, and you know. Oftentimes, you know, while we're growing up or we're in college or even graduate school or even starting our career, there, there are people or, um, or things that occur that kind of either lift us up or kind of hold us a little bit back. And what were the, the people and, and resources that really helped you as you began your career? Well, I mean, I have to say that, you know, as you, even as you, um, become increasingly independent, especially when you're in college and beyond, you're still, your parents are still your primary influence. And, and I was close to my parents until they died. Um, my mom was 92 and my dad was 100. And um, we were beyond tight and close. And um, what I learned from them throughout life, well, my the, both of them had a strong work ethic. My dad had a very, very strong work ethic. They both had a tremendous sense of justice and fairness and equality and and you know just um, you know attention to everybody. Everybody should be uplifted. And it was just my mother was an activist in her time, and um, she would not allow something unjust to go without something said or done. And I also, from both of them, learned tremendous compassion. And those, I would say those are the three things, the work ethic, the need for justice and fairness, and compassion for others have driven my entire career. And, um, and then, so that's number one, both my parents, and number two, I had a mentor when I was in, in the Department of Criminology at Florida State named Ray Jeffrey, and he was, he was amazing. He introduced me to neuroscience. Even He was not a neuroscientist, but that's when I began to get take that program and develop a concentration there. And um, he was such a powerful influence for me, and he was such a curmudgeon person. On the outside, he was crusty on the outside, but on the inside, he was warm and wonderful. And every time he visited me, he would bring little Florida State clothes to my, my babies. Um, and he just had everything in the world to do with my trajectory. And then I would say the third thing that I've been carrying in my purse with me now for 30 years is an essay written by Bertrand Russell, a famous mathematician who could write prose like nobody's business. And he wrote about the three things that he has lived for. 
And I could not have said it better myself. And that is love, knowledge, and to reduce the pain of suffering. And it is the most incredible essay you've ever read in your life. So what was the impetus or, or how did you get involved in, in prevention science proper? How did the National um, Prevention Science Coalition begin and how did you get involved in it? Well, long ago when the Society for Prevention Research was established, I was, you know, I had worked at the National Institute on Drug Abuse Intramural Program, as I said before, and um, they were in part the initiators of that society. And, and I wasn't a prevention researcher. Most people actually don't have formal training in prevention science, quite frankly, although that is starting to change finally. But um, I watched from a distance and then increasingly became involved with SPR. And, um, and that just burgeoned for me and gave me insights into what prevention science is and what it can be. Uh, but in, in concert with that, what I was finding was myself feeling frustrated that the field in academia particularly incentivizes people to get grants, write papers, scholarly papers, um, teach classes, um, it's bean counting, right? And, and so I would have studies in neighborhoods or school systems that were, you know, really benefiting people. And then when the grant was over, I had to walk away from it. And they would say, like school district said to me, you know, where are you going? <laughs> you know, this is great. You can't take this away. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't have any more money. The grant is out. And that was really the final straw. There were a lot of things converging in my career generally um, around this. So it wasn't just this one thing, but you know, realizing that the field of research and science and so forth in general is not constructed to be sustained. It's project driven. And I needed something sustainable. I wanted to start an organization that would focus on embedding um, practices, uh, interventions, programs, and policies that are known to have an impact. So the research is still for answering the questions, right? So that's just one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is what the equation is, what about the questions that have already been answered? What about the knowledge that we've amassed over the last 30 to 40 years about all the primary social determinants of health? What do we do with that knowledge? If the public and the policymakers don't know about it, and you're only publishing for other scientists, and you're only doing piecemeal projects, and you're only worried about tenure and how many publications are on your record, the, the people who stand to benefit will not benefit. And so I wanted to make this permanent. I wanted people to know about what we about what the field has amassed. What is what is the consensus in the field about, for instance, we know that that adversity impacts child brain development. What are we going to do with that? We're just going to continue to publish for each other? Or are we going to tell policymakers about it? Are we going to take tell the public so that they know better how to raise their children so that they can nurture their child's brain development and subsequent ability to achieve in life in multiple domains. Why don't we tell people about it? Let's 
translate science to practice and to policy? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people that get involved uh, in prevention science and, and looking at, you know, what works and what doesn't work and how we can communicate that to um, practitioners and, and policymakers. I think you're right. None of us really, you know, when we were in college or grad school says, hey, I want to be a prevention uh, scientist. And I think a lot of us share that same feeling you have is where we're, you know, doing a lot of research and we're talking with each other, but we're really not able to serve the people that 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 need it most. And I can even recall I was on a panel several years ago at a national conference and the the panel was looking at, you know, what are the the biggest health threats to the United States? And of course, you know, I was seated like fifth on 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 the stage and the first person said tobacco use. And I was like, okay, great. You know, that's the number one cause of preventable death in the world. And then the next person said obesity. And, and then another person was talking about health disparities. And, and finally, when they got to me, you know, all the good answers were, were taken <laughs> already, right? And when, what I shared with the audience was, you know, the biggest issue that I see right now in, in, in public health and in the, the prevention sciences is there is a chasm as, as wide and long as the Grand Canyon between what we know uh, works. Now, that's not to say that we know everything, right? Right. But what we know works in what's actually done in communities, right? Yes. So, for example, you know, we've known for a long time that simply increasing people's knowledge about some health issue or the consequences of even their own health behavior is, is, is not sufficient to get them to, to change their behavior. And so what I'm curious to learn from you is, um, what's your biggest success in the field of prevention um, science, and why do you think that happened? I mean, I, I can answer that fairly easily because it's something we talk about all the time and that defines us, is that there are literally dozens and dozens of programs, policies, and practices that have been shown to prevent the most common and costly psychological, behavioral, and health problems. And, and it's just, um, you know, these programs and policies and so forth have been well tested. And while they don't reach everybody, when they are delivered systematically and comprehensively in communities and in sectors of our society, they can benefit many, many people. And if we can just kind of embed them in our systems, um, then we would we would reduce so many problems that we're currently tackling in our society. And so th this is without a doubt the biggest accomplishment of the field of prevention science. And in fact, the Institute of Medicine's report in 2009 came out and said that this is the field with the most potential to have the greatest impact on, on these psychological, behavioral, mental health problems. Um, and so it is, it's widely recognized amongst those that are involved in this work but what we need to do is tell others so that the end users can um, can execute the, these practices. Certainly, with your leadership in the National Prevention Science Coalition and and other folks that are working in prevention science, I think we've taken great strides um, forward. But what I'm curious to learn from you is is what is our field's um, you know, biggest challenge right now um, that you see. Um, going on in terms of that translational ro uh, role between 
research and then getting that into programmatic or policies? The biggest challenge, um, you know, it, twofold again, I would say that uh, researchers have to feel comfortable in engaging in translation and advocacy. Training is needed. Um, you can't go before Congress and critique a study. You only go before Congress when you have field consensual knowledge and you don't critique it. You only um, convey what is known in the field and that is generally accepted. And then there's different ways of writing policy briefs and communicating and connecting with policymakers. So it's a protocol. It's and, and researchers need to become familiar with that protocol in reaching policymakers and engaging in policy arenas generally. And right now, most do not. And so we're doing trainings and we're bringing in researchers to get involved in a number of, of ways. And, and we're seeing tremendous interest. The other part of the of this in terms of challenges is the political environment, which is right now not entirely accepting of the role of science. In the age of COVID, with science, um, you know, very much in the forefront of all of our minds, I think this is the age of prevention. I think people are starting to realize what prevention is and that there's a science to prevention and that we need to begin to consider how our political leaders can embrace it and, um, and act consistent with what the evidence is telling us. So oftentimes we, we implement programs that are, that sound good, um, that sound nice, uh, or where vested interests are pushing for them, but there's absolutely no evidence, and some of them are actually harmful. And so we need to brush that aside, and we need to, the stakeholders need to prioritize the science and ensure they are surrounded by experts who, who themselves have been well vetted and who are most likely to provide evidence that has been well vetted. The next part of our podcast is going to be a lightning round. So we're just going to ask you some questions about yourself, a little bit silly. We just want you to respond, you know, as quickly as possible. So you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So what is your favorite word? My favorite word? I was going to say chocolate. Let me say passion because I have tremendous passion for this word. So what word or sound do you hate? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's easy. Traffic. <laughs> I, I grew up in the city. I can't get far enough away. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, animal rescue. Animal rescue. Yes. And what profession would you absolutely not like to do? Well, okay. Then because of something that just recently happened, I would say hurricane hunting. Hurricane. Which really what? freaks me out. <laughs> flying through the, the hurricanes in an airplane or exactly my mother-in-law just went through the recent hurricane and we were watching these hurricane hunters and even watching it on tv freaked me out <laughs> yeah it's very unpredictable yeah um what would you like to hear god say when you arrive in heaven oh gosh that's a tough one you know um what would i want god to say um, I'd like to have 
some consolation in death that um, would help me not to experience the pain and suffering that I witnessed. And so maybe God could just say you are now in peace. That's great. Well, Diana Fishbein, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Appreciate your time. We hope to hear more uh, about what you're doing and your role in the National Prevention Science Coalition in the future. Thank you so much, Robert. This has been fun. The Prevention Matters Podcast is the official podcast of the National Prevention Science Coalition. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please click on the subscribe button.